Welcome to the Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care podcast. Why does this topic matter? One person in the United States dies from a drug overdose every six minutes. We as healthcare providers must do better to treat addiction, prevent overdoses, and improve the lives of our patients and their families. This podcast is designed to provide you with simple and evidence-based information on substance use disorders that you can use to take better care of your patients on your next shift. Greetings and salutations. Dr. Casey Grover here again, and happy to have you join me for another episode of Addiction in Emergency Medicine and Acute Care. In this episode, we'll be doing an overview of alcohol withdrawal, from pathophysiology to clinical presentation to treatment. And this is a huge topic with lots of subtopics, so we'll be trying to keep this very high level so we cover everything. This has been a topic that I've wanted to cover for quite a while, but I hadn't found a good paper to review. I finally found one that I liked, and we'll be using it as our evidence-based backbone for this podcast episode. The article is from Open Access Emergency Medicine in 2020. The lead author is Chelsea Wolf, and the title is Management of Alcohol Withdrawal in the Emergency Department, Current Perspectives. And this is a perfect topic for this time of year as we get ready to head into the boozy holiday. And with that, let's dig right into this episode. The introduction section of the article provides a few key points to get us started on the topic of alcohol withdrawal. First, alcohol withdrawal in the emergency department is common. Approximately one-third of patients presenting to the emergency department, primarily for problems related to alcohol, will experience moderate to severe withdrawal while they are in the emergency department. And alcohol withdrawal is associated with an increased use of critical care and inpatient treatment resources. Second, alcohol use in general is common. Alcohol is the most commonly used substance in the United States. Out of our population in the United States of 330 million people, 179 million people, that's 54% of the general population, drink alcohol each year. 67 million people, about 20% of the general population, binge drink which is five or more drinks in a single occasion for men and four or more drinks for women in a single occasion. 17 million people, about 5% of the general population, exhibit heavy drinking, which is five or more binge drinking episodes in a 30-day period. Alcohol use disorder is common too. And as a brief reminder, alcohol use disorder is defined as a pattern of alcohol use that has led to functional impairments or distress. For a reminder on how to assess for and grade the severity of an alcohol use disorder, check out episode six of this podcast on how to assess the severity of a substance use disorder. Now, back to how common alcohol use disorders are. In the United States, the lifetime prevalence of an alcohol use disorder is 29% with approximately 5% of the population having an alcohol use disorder in a given year. And unfortunately, 
only about 20% of people in the United States with an alcohol use disorder engage in any treatment. Now, as far as how the United States compares to other countries, per capita alcohol consumption is higher in Europe, New Zealand, and Australia than in the United States. Interestingly, countries with large Islamic populations have the lowest alcohol intake globally as the faith encourages abstinence. Alcohol is the cause of 88,000 deaths per year in the United States and over 2.5 million deaths per year globally. Now, the authors take a brief break here to describe their methods for this paper. And basically, they did a review of the existing literature on alcohol withdrawal, and this paper represents a summary of all of the pertinent articles that they reviewed on this topic. The article is furthermore broken down into two parts on the topic of alcohol withdrawal. Part one is on the alcohol withdrawal syndrome, and we'll start with that. Alcohol withdrawal is defined as when a person develops two or more distinguishing symptoms within several hours to days following a significant decrease in alcohol consumption after a prolonged period of heavy drinking. These symptoms include nausea and vomiting, autonomic hyperactivity, insomnia, anxiety or agitation, tremor, perceptual disturbances, and seizures. And it's very important to note that withdrawal develops when there is a relative decrease in serum alcohol levels from baseline intake. So patients can develop withdrawal even when there is a detectable level of alcohol in their system. It's the relative decrease that precipitates the withdrawal. And this definition of alcohol withdrawal, the authors point out, is from the DSM-5, which as a reminder is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Disorders, 5th edition. Now, why does alcohol withdrawal happen? As we've discussed in previous episodes, alcohol consumption increases GABA activity and decreases glutamate activity in the brain. GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter, while glutamate is an excitatory neurotransmitter. With chronic alcohol use, the brain downregulates GABA receptors and upregulates glutamate receptors to try and maintain homeostasis. Thus, when alcohol is stopped or decreased, there is not enough GABA and too much glutamate, leading to decreased inhibitory activity combined with increased excitatory activity. Furthermore, this unique state causes neuronal hyperexcitability, which can lead to seizures, and there are other changes in neurotransmitters, such as dopamine, which can lead to hallucinations. The authors move on to describe the stages and types of alcohol withdrawal. We'll start with uncomplicated withdrawal. This is the most common form and involves the development of unpleasant symptoms such as headache, anxiety, nausea, insomnia, and mild tremors. Patients may have tachycardia and hypertension during this time as well. Symptoms usually begin within six hours after an acute decrease in alcohol use and can last 24 to 48 hours. Symptoms will never last for more than one week. 
The next syndrome is alcohol withdrawal hallucinations, also known as alcoholic hallucinosis. This is not as common as uncomplicated withdrawal, and it is seen in 2 to 8% of patients with chronic and heavy alcohol use. Hallucinations begin 8 to 12 hours after the last drink and may include auditory, visual, tactile, gustatory, or olfactory hallucinations. Patients with alcohol withdrawal hallucinations may be paranoid, but should not be confused. They should have a clear sensorium. Moving on, we have alcohol withdrawal seizures. They most commonly occur 12 to 24 hours after the last drink, and the risk of seizures continues up to 48 hours after the last drink. They are generalized tonic-clonic seizures. Without treatment, two-thirds of patients who develop alcohol withdrawal seizures will develop multiple seizures in close succession, and 3% will go on to develop status epilepticus. And finally, we have alcohol withdrawal delirium, also known as delirium tremens. This is the most severe form of alcohol withdrawal and is characterized by an alteration in consciousness with severe autonomic changes and hallucinations. It occurs in 3 to 5% of hospitalized patients with alcohol withdrawal. Symptoms normally begin 1 to 3 days after cessation of alcohol. However, in patients with a history of complicated withdrawal, this syndrome can develop as soon as 8 hours after a reduction in alcohol use. Mortality can be extremely high, up to 20%, with death coming from infection, cardiac arrhythmia, and or respiratory collapse. And as a side note, I had a case of delirium tremens about two months ago in my emergency department, and holy snot rockets, this patient was sick. He was hallucinating, pulling at lines, agitated, and tachycardic. We ended up giving him over 10 milligrams of lorazepam in the emergency department, and we still had trouble controlling his withdrawal, and he ended up getting intubated and going to the intensive care unit. That was a very scary case. Back to the article. The authors pivot here in their discussion from the alcohol withdrawal syndromes to how to diagnose and monitor alcohol withdrawal. Fortunately, there is a lot of research that has been done on this, and we have some standardized scales that are used to measure the severity of withdrawal and trend it over time. The authors recommend the revised Clinical Institute Withdrawal Assessment for Alcohol Scale, which is usually around the hospital referred to as the CIWA, C-I-W-A. It's a 10-item scale that tracks the degree of nausea and vomiting, headache, tremor, diaphoresis, anxiety, agitation, disorientation, and hallucinations. Basically, the way this works is that a clinician, often a nurse, will assess a patient with alcohol withdrawal, and using the scale, this clinician will assess the patient in each area of the scale. The areas assessed are nausea and vomiting, scored 0 to 7, tremor, scored 0 to 7, paroxysmal sweats, scored 0 to 7, anxiety, scored 0 to 7, agitation, scored 0 to 7, tactile disturbances, scored 0 to 7, auditory disturbances, 
scored 0 to 7. Visual disturbances, scored 0 to 7. Headache, scored 0 to 7. And orientation and confusion, which is scored 0 to 4. For each area, a score of 0 means no symptoms in that area are present. And the higher the level of symptoms in that area, the higher the score, up to either 7 or 4, depending on the section. So when looking at a tremor, a person with no tremor would get a 0. A person with moderate tremor when arms are extended would get a 4. And a person with a severe tremor when arms are not extended would get a 7. The scores in all 10 areas are then summed up to give the final score, which then allows you to assess the severity of withdrawal using the numeric scale. And this score is available on MDCalc if you want to check it out and put in some sample numbers to see how it works and what symptoms correlate with more severe withdrawal. As far as the downside of the CIWA, it takes about five minutes for a clinician to complete, which can be hard in a busy emergency department. Furthermore, when patients are confused, the assessment is harder as patients may not be able to respond to commands or provide answers. And it's also somewhat subjective. What makes nausea and vomiting a two versus a three? So obviously we want skilled and experienced clinicians doing the assessments so that our answers are as consistent and accurate as possible. Also, and I didn't know this, the CWA score was developed at outpatient detoxification centers and has not actually been validated in the emergency department. But it tends to be used rather widely and is accepted as an overall useful tool. Interestingly, at my hospital, we don't use the CWA, we use a different scale, the Alcohol Withdrawal Scale, also known as the AWS. It's a similar assessment tool to the CWA, but our chemical dependency service likes the AWS better. So, bottom line, find out what they use at your hospital and get familiar with that. The authors make one last final point on alcohol withdrawal syndromes in that there is some literature on how to predict who will develop severe alcohol withdrawal. They highlight the prediction of alcohol withdrawal severity scale as potentially useful, which is also on MDCalc. And we actually covered this topic on episode 1.5 of this podcast, where we reviewed a paper entitled, Will This Hospitalized Patient Develop Severe Alcohol Withdrawal? The authors here pivot and move to the second part of the article, which is on the management of acute alcohol withdrawal. Since this is an article written by emergency physicians, the authors first address stabilization of the seriously ill patient. They highlight a few high-level points that we all do for every patient, like stabilizing the ABCs, assessing for hypoglycemia, addressing severe electrolyte disturbances, and evaluating for concomitant trauma. We've all got this. We do this all the time. The authors then add in a reminder about giving thiamine, and 100 milligrams IV is a good starting dose for the undifferentiated patient with an alcohol use disorder. The authors move on in this stabilization section to addressing seizures, reminding us that active seizures should be treated aggressively with benzodiazepines until seizure activity is terminated. And if a patient has status epilepticus, we should treat that aggressively. In my mind, these are things that all of us know well in the ED and acute care setting. And lastly, in the stabilization section, 
the authors very appropriately remind us to keep a broad differential diagnosis with patients with alcohol use disorder as intoxication or confusion from withdrawal may make it easy to overlook other comorbid medical conditions, ingestions, and even occult trauma. So don't forget to do a good head-to-toe exam on your intoxicated patient to make sure that they don't need a head CT or seem overly tachypnic to warrant a workup for acidosis. And this last point is so important. It is so easy to blow off the intoxicated patient or the patient with multiple ED visits for alcohol intoxication as just drunk. Alcohol reduces the ability of the patient to feel pain and communicate effectively, and we've all heard stories of the colossal misses from our colleagues with the line of, I thought he was just drunk. All right, moving on to some more guided information on alcohol withdrawal from the authors. They begin discussing the treatment of alcohol withdrawal by reviewing benzodiazepines. And as a reminder, we talked a lot about benzodiazepines in episode four of this podcast on benzodiazepine dependence. So if you need a refresher on benzos, it might be helpful to re-listen to that episode. To begin, benzodiazepines are well established as a mainstay of treatment for alcohol withdrawal given their activity at the GABA-A receptor. Benzos decrease symptom severity, the risk of delirium, and the risk of seizures in patients with alcohol withdrawal. And as we heard in episode four of this podcast on benzodiazepine dependence, there are many different benzodiazepines, each with unique characteristics. And when managing dependence and withdrawal, long-acting benzodiazepines, such as diazepam, also known as Valium, and chlorodiazepoxide, also known as Librium, are the best choices. The long half-life means that the medication will stay in the body for days. So a person who takes diazepam for five days for acute alcohol withdrawal will likely have, based on the half-life of the drug, diazepam in their system for up to a total of 10 days after starting treatment or even longer, creating a smooth taper down of drug levels in the body to manage any residual withdrawal after the last dose. When a person is in active alcohol withdrawal, the goal of initial treatment is to control symptoms, tremulousness, nausea, agitation, and restlessness, and to prevent seizures. Benzodiazepines may be given PO or IV, and the authors recommend what I do in my practice, which is if they can take PO and they don't look so bad, give them PO. And if they are vomiting excessively or look sick, give IV. And at a high level, there are basically two strategies on how to manage medications for alcohol withdrawal in the emergency department and acute care setting. The first is fixed dosing. This is a predetermined medication regimen, which is set and ordered for the patient, such as diazepam 10 milligrams PO TID. The second are symptom-triggered protocols. The patient's level of alcohol withdrawal is assessed using a scoring tool, and the score determines the dose of the medication ordered, such as diazepam, 10 milligrams, PO, Q30 minutes, PRN, CWA score, 8 to 15, or 
Diazepam 20 milligrams PO, Q30 minutes, PRN, CWA score over 15. So the dose would go up as the CWA score or other alcohol assessment score goes up. And there are actually tons of different options and ways to do this. And the authors actually dig into that point a little bit here. There have been multiple studies that have demonstrated the superiority of a symptom-triggered strategy for the management of alcohol withdrawal. The benzodiazepine doses with a symptom-triggered strategy ended up being lower and for fewer days as compared to a fixed-dose strategy without any difference in the efficacy of treating withdrawal. Now, on to the downside of symptom-triggered strategies. Comorbid psychiatric illness or medical illness may impair the assessment of alcohol withdrawal by the standardized scoring tools. Severe anxiety can look a lot like alcohol withdrawal, and patients not in withdrawal can score high on withdrawal assessments simply when they are anxious. Additionally, delirium from a non-alcohol-related medical illness can look like withdrawal too. And we also know the patients who exaggerate symptoms of alcohol withdrawal in an effort to obtain higher doses of benzodiazepines, whether it be because of the euphoria from the benzodiazepines or out of fear for impending withdrawal or anxiety. You might want to consider a fixed dose regimen in such circumstances. A brief aside here outside of the article. The authors don't differentiate in this article between inpatient versus outpatient management. Considering you need a clinician to assess the patient in order to do symptom-triggered dosing, symptom-triggered dosing regimens are going to be used in the ED, inpatient, and medical detoxification setting. The best you can do as an outpatient is to give the patient PRN dosing so that they only take a dose when feeling withdrawal as in a prescription for diazepam 10 milligrams, number 15, one POTID PRN withdrawal. Fixed dosing can be done in any setting as the dose is set for the patient in advance. Now, back to the article. The authors do make one additional point on benzodiazepines, which is that benzodiazepines do have risk. They can cause overdose, particularly when combined with opiates, they can also accumulate in the central nervous system and cause prolonged sedation. And many benzodiazepines are metabolized in the liver, so patients with significant liver impairment can experience prolonged half-lives of the medications when taking benzodiazepines. At my hospital, we use diazepam for patients without significant liver impairment on a symptom-triggered protocol based on the alcohol withdrawal scale. And if patients have cirrhosis, not just LFT elevations, but true hepatic impairment, we use oxazepam, also known as Serax, on a symptom-triggered protocol as oxazepam is metabolized outside of the liver. The authors pivot here from benzos to barbiturates. And this for me is really uncharted water. I have not used these in my practice. Barbiturates work at the GABA-A receptor to increase activity of the GABA-A receptor and also reduce glutamate activity. So their pharmacology makes them very helpful for alcohol withdrawal. A commonly used barbiturate for alcohol withdrawal is phenobarbital, which has an onset of five to 30 minutes and lasts up to 140 hours. 
as we know, that long half-life is very useful for managing dependence. And in some protocols, patients can be discharged home after a single dose of phenobarbital due to the long half-life. And studies have shown that phenobarbital is as effective as benzodiazepines for the management of alcohol withdrawal. And in cases of severe alcohol withdrawal, phenobarbital can be given with a symptom-triggered benzodiazepine regimen given in addition. The authors move on to other pharmacological approaches and will breeze through them since not all of them have the same level of evidence behind them as benzos and barbs. First, they discuss gabapentin. And I feel like a broken record here for referencing previous podcast episodes, but we discussed gabapentin in detail in episode 10 on the use of gabapentin for cannabis dependence, and again in episode 12 on medications for alcohol use disorder. So you can go back and take a listen for review if needed. Basically, gabapentin modulates the neurotransmission of GABA, increasing the activity of GABA, and thus is helpful in managing alcohol withdrawal. Gabapentin can be used as a single agent for mild withdrawal managed outside of the hospital or can be used as an adjunct to benzodiazepine treatment regimens for both inpatient and outpatient settings. Gabapentin at higher doses, such as 1,800 milligrams per day, reduces the amount of benzodiazepine needed to manage alcohol withdrawal. There are many different regimens for gabapentin in alcohol withdrawal, such as 600 milligrams TID or scheduled tapers, such as 300 milligrams QID for two days, then TID for two days, then BID for two days, then daily for two days. And going back to our reference to episode 12 on medications for alcohol use disorder, a reminder, gabapentin can be used after the withdrawal period and continued to reduce cravings and future alcohol consumption. The authors then move on to the anti-epileptic drugs. They looked at valproic acid, carbamazepine, and phenytoin. Unfortunately, a Cochrane review of these medications did not show any differences between these medications and placebo in regards to alcohol withdrawal seizures, delirium tremens, or alcohol cravings. However, it's important to know that outside of this Cochrane review, there is some evidence that carbamazepine may be helpful for the management of alcohol withdrawal. And this can be useful in patients with alcohol dependence or withdrawal and who exhibit benzodiazepine-seeking behaviors. A common regimen for carbamazepine for alcohol withdrawal is 200 milligrams QID on day one, then 200 milligrams TID on day two, then 200 milligrams BID on day three, then 200 milligrams BID on day four, then 200 milligrams once on day five. The authors of this article move on to what they describe as adjunctive medications, most specifically for benzodiazepine-resistant withdrawal, a situation in which a patient is still exhibiting signs and symptoms of withdrawal despite multiple and appropriate doses of benzodiazepines. The hypothesis as to the pathophysiology of resistant alcohol withdrawal is that there is such a significant downregulation of GABA-A receptors in alcohol dependence due to prolonged and heavy use that benzos are no longer effective. Resistant alcohol withdrawal is an ill-defined condition 
with one definition being that a patient requires over 40 milligrams of diazepam within one hour. Generally, for such cases, clinicians look to other classes of drugs to manage withdrawal. The medications discussed by the authors in this section on resistant alcohol withdrawal include propofol, ketamine, clonidine, baclofen, and dexmedetomidine. The bottom line on all of these is that the studies on them for resistant alcohol withdrawal are small and the data is limited. However, when treating a patient on your next shift with severe alcohol withdrawal, it would appear that the data most supports the use of propofol or dexmedetomidine for resistant alcohol withdrawal. Pivoting from the pharmacologic management of alcohol withdrawal, the authors move on to discussing behavioral interventions to manage alcohol withdrawal. Screening, brief intervention, and referral to treatment, also known as the ESPERT, seems to have the most evidence in the scientific literature supporting its use in our emergency department and acute care practice. And I would love to dive in to discuss ESPERTs in this episode, but it's already way too long, so we'll have to cover ESPERTs in another episode. All right, home stretch, almost there. Let's talk disposition on these patients. So you're working your next shift in the emergency department and you've got a patient in front of you with alcohol withdrawal. What level of care are they going to need? And it really comes down to how bad is their withdrawal? Did it stabilize in the emergency department? Is it still bad in the emergency department despite ED interventions? Maybe we should admit them. Do they have a history of severe withdrawal? When would they need the intensive care unit? The answer is that it depends on how they respond to ED and acute care interventions. If they are better with PO meds in the emergency department, you as an ED provider can start planning for outpatient management. If they require IV dosing in the emergency department or require multiple doses of PO or IV medications in the emergency department, they probably should be admitted for symptom-triggered medication management. And if they're not responding to PO or IV interventions in the ED or have signs of delirium tremens, then the ICU is going to be the best level of care for them. Now, when it comes to disposition after stabilization in the ED or acute care setting, there are multiple options for the next level of care. In other words, where should they go after their ED or inpatient discharge? The authors here use the ASAM criteria to guide us. And as a reference, ASAM stands for the American Society of Addiction Medicine. First, we have mild withdrawal. This can be managed as an outpatient, and the patient will follow up with an outpatient substance use treatment clinic or even potentially primary care. For moderate withdrawal, there are two options. The first is outpatient withdrawal management. The patient is going to be discharged home to a supportive setting, such as with family. There is going to be close follow-up with outpatient chemical dependency services to monitor withdrawal. The second option would be residential withdrawal management, where a person would need 24 hours of support to manage their withdrawal and continue treatment. For example, they may not have a supportive outpatient setting to go to, or they've not been able to do outpatient withdrawal management in the past. And lastly, we have severe withdrawal. Severe withdrawal requires 24-hour nursing care for the initial phase of treatment. These folks are likely to be managed as an inpatient or in a medical detoxification setting. 
At my hospital, if someone has severe withdrawal, they are admitted for medical detoxification on the inpatient unit and then go to a residential treatment program. We actually don't have a standalone medical detoxification treatment program in my community, so we have to do it in the inpatient setting. And one last reminder, if you're discharging patients home with alcohol withdrawal, they may need discharge medications to manage that withdrawal after discharge. So don't forget to address that in your discharge plan. Holy snot rockets, that was a ton of information. So let's go through some take home points and wrap up this episode. Number one, alcohol use disorder is defined as a pattern of alcohol use that has led to functional impairments or distress. Number two, alcohol withdrawal is defined as when a person develops two or more distinguishing symptoms within several hours to days following a significant decrease in alcohol consumption after a prolonged period of heavy drinking. These symptoms include nausea and vomiting, autonomic hyperactivity, insomnia, anxiety or agitation, tremor, perceptual disturbances, and seizures. Number three, alcohol withdrawal has four specific presentations that it causes and patients may develop more than one. They are uncomplicated withdrawal, alcohol withdrawal hallucinosis, alcohol withdrawal seizures, and delirium tremens. Number four, the severity of alcohol withdrawal can be assessed using standard scoring scales and tools such as the CIWA and the AWS. Number five, there are multiple approaches to treating alcohol withdrawal, but basic strategies are fixed dosing regimens and symptom triggered regimens. Number six, benzodiazepines are the mainstay of treatment of alcohol withdrawal. Long-acting benzodiazepines such as diazepam work best. Number seven, there are lots of options for adjunctive treatment for alcohol withdrawal. Phenobarbital may be used for severe alcohol withdrawal, while gabapentin may be used for mild to moderate alcohol withdrawal. And finally, number eight, patients require different levels of service based on the severity of their withdrawal. Mild withdrawal may be managed as an outpatient. Moderate withdrawal may be stabilized in the ED or acute care setting with outpatient follow-up, or moderate withdrawal may require admission and or residential drug treatment program placement. Severe withdrawal requires inpatient management and most often residential treatment after stabilization. That was a long episode, but it really covers all of the issues related to alcohol withdrawal. While we only scratched the surface on many of the topics, this was a fantastic overview. We'll definitely come back to dive in to a lot of these topics in greater detail on future episodes. That's all for this episode, so thanks for listening. And don't forget, treating substance use disorders saves lives.